I think that uh, that John does take some liberties in his book, and some he makes some connections that may not necessarily be there. But but uh, this 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 uh, what you had said that there's no there's no uh, words or no names for plants within the Bible that that refer to psychedelic plants. From my reading of John John Allegro, uh, I would say that that's not true. There's there's a number of words, and he he refers to Pliny, which he, Pliny was a uh, was a, uh, a historian, and he was also very knowledgeable about plants. He was one of the first uh, people to put together a, a rather complete list of, of uh, plants, uh, their common names um, at the time, and their their different properties. And uh, so there's a number of a number of uh, references to psychoactive, powerful plants within the, within the Bible. One of them being manna. Within uh, the Exodus, um, talks about um, uh, manna as this as this uh, small round thing that grew from the ground, and bestowed uh, bestowed special powers on on uh, the people that ate them. And I'll just read an excerpt here from the Bible, Exodus sixteen fourteen. This is within reference to the sacred manna. Um, and when the dew that lay was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. Uh, some of them left of it, of it till the morning, and, bred it war- and, and it bred worms and stank. The small, the small round edible objects uh, that they're referring to here, it's believed, uh, according to the, the, the Sumerian roots and the different uh, names for plants at the time, refers to, uh, the, refers to a mushroom. And... Uh, one of the things with, with mushrooms is if, you, if they're left in the sun and if you don't pick them at the right time, they do rot and they also do produce worms. And I've experienced this myself with Amanita muscaria. Um, if, if you let it rot, it produces worms. So there's, there's references within the Bible to uh, different, different plants. Uh, one of the names that was used common during the time for the mushroom was the mandrake. Uh, there's also there's, there's a number of different uh, sections within the Bible that talk about the mandrake. And when they when the Bible talks about these different plants, there's always some mysterious power uh, connected with them. Um, the, the theory that John has, which I which I, I which you could take on as a conspiratorial thing, but just because it has a conspiratorial nature to it, doesn't necessarily mean that there's no truth to it or no possible truth to it. The theory that John has is that that these groups were very were very protective of of the uh, the power of these plants. And they did not want them to get into um, the, the wrong hands because they were very powerful. And they also wanted to protect the, to protect their their access to these plants because if it came out, uh, the, you know, the power of these plants came out into the open, then that would that would also obviously uh, you know, cause the possibility that that their source and their access to them would disappear as more people found them. Um, and I think what John Allegro and other and other scholars have done with respect to this theory is, is they're not necessarily trying to to prove that all religions are the same, but they're they're making common parallels, and the common parallel seems to be the the ritualistic use of, of plants. Um, one of the things, if you look at the the story of, of Genesis, um, in the story of Genesis, there's this the the, the fruit of the of the tree, the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, and um, it's uh, the the story is is that God told them not to eat this this fruit, and uh, because because God did not want for whatever reason that the God within within the Old Testament did not want uh, 
humans to know, to have this knowledge. And, and um, the th- one of the theories is, is that, is that um, the Judaic groups were, were not in favor of, of common people or other people besides themselves having, having access to this, to this fruit. And uh, that's one of the reasons why um, the Christians were 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 uh, were kind of hated, or not hated, but but uh, seen as a, as a, as a threat. Um, but but what's what's interesting about the the connection between Jesus and 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 Jesus as being a um, as and Jesus as being connected to the mushroom. Is a lot of the the different uh, the the different symbolism within Christian art. There's a number of Christian chapels within Europe, which which clearly show Jesus pictured with mushrooms and and uh, Amanita muscaria symbolism, which to me seems to suge- suggest that there's something to what John Allegro is saying. Otherwise, I don't know why artists would go to such an extent to to clearly portray Jesus with the mushroom. In some of the research that I did, uh, in addition to reading the book, I, I had kind of looked. I, there's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting stuff online that shows pictures of Jesus and the twelve apostles within these different cathedrals with the mushroom, and uh, a lot of these a lot of these uh, were the the different uh, cathedrals that were built in the twelfth, the eleventh, twelfth, and thirteenth centuries within within Europe. Um, St. Michael's Church in Hildensheim, Germany, Basilica de San Vicente in Avila, Spain, um, the Karenlik Kilis, or Dark Church in Goran, Turkey, uh, St. Michael's Church, I already mentioned that one, um, Notre Dame de Leon in France, 13th century, uh, there's a fresco of Christ's entry, in, a fresco of Christ's entry into, into Jerusalem in the Church of St. Martin in Berry, France, um, the Canterbury uh, Psalter, uh, which depicts Adam and Eve in the Tree of Knowledge, um, which is which looks exactly like the the Amanita muscaria mushroom, and has p- photos of both Adam and Eve eating the mushroom. The Plain Keralt fresco showing the Amanita muscaria at the Tree of Good and Evil in the Garden of Eden, that's in the Plain Keralt Chapel in Marengi, uh, France. Uh, Chartres Cathedral in. Uh, I'm not sure where in France, but uh, 12th century AD. And what's interesting about, and anybody can look this up online, it's it, it clearly shows Jesus with the mushrooms. And what's interesting about this is that uh, in in uh, the 11th century, Pope Innocent III um, made a proclamation that that um, it was a proclamation about this this idea of uh, with this this concept within Catholic, within the Christian faith of the Catholic faith that. The body and blood of Christ, or the the wine and the and the wafer that's used in the in the Holy Catholic Mass, by the by the by the by this means of transubstantiation, and by the the priest saying a, a sacred invocation over it, a blessing over it, transforms it into the actual body and blood of Christ. Well, that's been one thing that's been very uh, heated and controversial amongst amongst different Christian groups is is whether that actually occurs, or whether the Christians were actually eating the body and blood of Christ. Well, this, the symbolism, the, the, the properties of the mushroom in, in, in uh, 
conjunction with this idea of the eating of the eating of the body and the blood of Christ, and these wor- the words for Jesus, the names for Jesus, connecting uh, to the Sumerian words and, and other Aramaic and Hebrew words for psychoact- for the psychoactive mushroom, seems to indicate that that what they were actually eating was the mushroom. And so there's a couple of uh, uh, a couple of things from the Bible that that to me kind of give credence to to this theory. Um, John six fifty three six reads, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye who eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have, you, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. So it's interesting that in the Bible we have this, this concept of, of, of essentially, if you take it literally, cannibalism. But if you connect it to this theory that, that uh, the Christians were, were ingesting the sacred mushroom to, to convene with God, uh, then, then it takes on a whole new meaning. Um, so the Amanita mushroom within different traditions, not just the Christian, Christian tradition, uh, if, you, if you look at the Sumerian words for it and other, other words for the mushroom, was also known as the flesh of the gods. There's just this one little section I want to read from, from James Arthur. It's, called, it's a book that he wrote called Mushrooms and Mankind. Uh, this is saying that he's, he's referring to John 6.53. Um, this is saying pretty clearly that the eating and drinking is physical. My body is flesh indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And the added statement that when you eat it, it is inside of you, leaves little room for debate that, it is, that this is a substance, not a phantom symbol alone. For those, okay, so he goes into, um, he, he says, In my opinion, when, when the Catholic Church adopted the act of transubstantiation, um, they, it was basically kind of a heresy because, because it, took, it took the tradition of eating the mushroom and gave the power to the, the priest to, to magically uh, alter this, this, uh, this bread into the body and blood of Christ. And one of the, the other things that... that uh, John Allegro talks about in the book is that it's not only the Christian cult that, that had some type of tradition with respect to the ingestion of psychedelic plants to convene with God. Uh, Jesus, Krishna, and, and Dionysius um, were also known, if, if you look at the words for those, different, uh, for those different gods within those traditions, they were, also, they were also considered to be mushroom gods. So I think what's interesting is, is we, we talk about the, what happens when you ingest a psychedelic plant like a mushroom and this, this, uh, this feeling of connection and love, like you have discussed, this, this feeling of euphoria and all these other things. To me, that type of a substance would have a lot of power and because it, it, it connected the person with, with this knowledge of, of what is or what we are deep down, uh, love, the energy of love. So that, that kind of plays into this theory that Jesus what this 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 narrative that Jesus was about love, and one of the things that that one of the other things that Jesus says is that is that you cannot live on the word of God alone. You must also eat, eat you know you must also eat the bread of God. So the bread of God, if you ascribe to this this theory that and this narrative that John Allegro presents, is is the the Amanita uh, muscaria. There's another. 
Another, another part of the, of the Bible, Proverbs 5.15, uh, Jesus says, Drink water from your own cistern. Drink water from your own well. Uh, John 7.37 says, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come, to me, come unto me and drink. He shall believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of, this, out of his body shall flow rivers of living water. One of the traditions with the use of the Amanita, of the Amanita Muscaria uh, is a, the indigenous use of Amanita Muscaria within Siberia, and the Siberia shamans. And the practice in Siberia is, is uh, they will ingest, first they'll pick the mushroom, and the Amanita Muscaria, and they will dry it, and then they will eat it. And one of the properties of, of Amanita Muscaria is the muscimol within, within the uh, Amanita Muscaria, which is considered to be the, the psychoactive component of it. One of the properties of it is it's not, it's not um, metabolized by the human body. So a lot of the, the, the compounds, the psychoactive compounds, get stored in the urine. And um, so you could actually eat the mushroom. And this is an actual practice amongst, it's still occurring within indigenous uh, populations within Siberia, where they would, they would also drink the urine after somebody had ingested the mushrooms. What's interesting about this also is that it wasn't just amongst uh, the humans within that group. They, the theory is, is that the, si- the Siberian people saw the, uh, the reindeer eating these mushrooms. And it's still common today to see the, the, the different reindeer in Siberia eating these mushrooms. And after, they ate, after the reindeer eat these mushrooms, they dance around and they frolic and they do all these things. And anyway, so the Siberians have a very close relationship with the reindeer. The reindeer is used for them like, it, like uh, the horses were used for us. One of the ways that they keep the reindeer in their herd is by feeding them this urine uh, because the reindeer are attracted to it. So here's a case, here, here's an actual indigenous tradition which, which has humans using these compounds for, for survival and also ceremonial purposes. Um, and then with respect to the Siberians, one of the traditions in Siberia still still practiced today, and this kind of gets into astrotheology, when... During the winter, when, when the winter sun dies and the spring, the spring sun raises, which is right around December 21st or, or December 25th in that time period, the practice, the practice was, and still in practice today, not as pre- predominantly as it was, but what the shaman would go out and collect the Amanita muscaria. And the Amanita muscaria has a symbiotic relationship with, with different plants within the forest. And... and in Siberia, they happen to grow around pine trees. So the shaman would go out and collect the Amanita muscaria, hang them on the tree to dry. Uh, that was for a number of reasons. The practice was to let them dry before you ingested them, and also because it was easier for the shaman to carry a dry mushroom as opposed to a wet mushroom or a bunch of them. And the practice was during, that, during the, the, the death of the, the winter sun and the, the rising of the spring sun, which was a symbolic thing amongst a lot of indigenous people, uh, the shaman would go around to the different homes, and the, the common home at that time was a yurt. And because it was during the winter, a lot of times the the door to the yurt was covered by snow. So the shaman was, was forced to go through the, the chimney. And so this, has par- this tradition within Siberia has parallels to the Christmas tradition within our own country. And, and the, the, the tradition of putting a pine tree within your home containing ornaments on it came from uh, Eastern Europe and Germany and then through the immigration of German immigrants to the U.S. became a custom within the U.S. And it was 
uh, you know, kind of co-opted with the Christian tradition, which is that you know Jesus was born on the twenty-fifth, the twenty-fifth of December, or whatever. So you know, now today we have this this tradition of of putting up the Christmas tree, hanging ornaments on them. And if if you go back in just early American history, there's all kinds of, of photos online of Christmas trees being decorated with Amanita Muscaria looking Christmas ornaments. And so there's a tradition there with Christmas in the Christian in the Christian Catholic tradition, with the use uh, with the with the Siberian tradition of of eating eating these mushrooms at the time of the death of the the winter sun and the rising of the spring sun. I, and I guess just to kind of uh, sum up a little bit what what John Allegro is, is is getting at, and it's not just John Allegro. There's a number of other scholars who who have also also had this theory. It's basically saying that there's within within the Christian Church and, and the the Roman Catholic Church, there was always an effort to keep to keep the knowledge the, the knowledge of these plants to themselves. And his theory is is that and, and other scholars' theory is is that there was an active I don't know you can I mean you can call it conspiracy if you like, but there was an active effort on the part of the, the, the initiates, the high priests within these traditions, to protect that knowledge and to keep it amongst themselves. And this plays this plays into the the mystery schools of, of the the Middle Ages in Europe. The mystery schools were were only open to uh, certain groups of people people who had who were literate and educated and who could understand the symbolism and and uh, other things associated with these traditions. And interestingly enough, all the great cathedrals, uh, which now we know have a lot of uh, relationship to. Um, uh, harmonics and, and sacred geometry, the way that these cathedrals were, bu- were built, is that these were built by highly intelligent people, and a part of their 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 initiation into their groups was the ingestion of some type of psych- psychedelic substance, and and this draws parallels to what's uh, what's happening now with research with respect to psilocybin mushrooms. They're 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 doing research now. Uh, with psilocybin mushrooms, that shows that these these uh, mushrooms have a lot of beneficial impacts on the human mind, and they're also very uh, very helpful with with healing people who have have suffered trauma. To me, it, it's interesting because the, there's one theory of the Essenes, which you had uh, talked about, and there's also this theory of the Essenes that that they that they they were healers. Uh, Josephus uh, talks about um, the Essenes, and he refers to them as the Ferrapuche. And therapeutic is like a, it, it's a Latin word that means like healer, therapeutic healing. And what's interesting about it is, is that now in, in the 21st century, we're understanding these compounds to be sources of healing. And Jesus himself in the Bible is presented as a healer. So to me, there's too many, there's too much evidence, too many corollaries between the healing power of these plants or the, the euphoric godlike feeling that you have on these plants or substances to discount what John Allegro is saying. And it's interesting now that we're starting to realize that these plants, when they're uh, introduced in a, in a proper set and setting, can have very healing uh, impacts on the person. To me, when I look at all this, when I look at the, the plain symbolism within the, these cathedrals, which shows Jesus clearly with Amelia muscaria mushrooms, I can't discount what John Allegro is saying. And, and just for the for the listener, if they're interested in delving into this further, there's I, I just have a, a short list here of a number of books that, that go into this. 
the, the first one that I have on the list is Sacred Mushroom of the Cross by John Allegro. Uh, Mushrooms, Myth, and Mithras, um, The Drug Cult That Civilized Europe by Carl A.P. Ruck. Uh, Soma, The Divine Mushroom of Immortality by Argorda Wasson. Uh, the Sacred Mushroom, Key to the Door of Eternity, by Andriha Puharik. Uh, the Holy Mushroom, Evidence of Mushrooms in, in Judeo-Christianity, by J.R. Irvin. And The Christ Conspiracy, by Arkara, Arkaya S. And just one more thing. R. Gorawasan, I should say, was a, um, in, the, in, the, in about the 1950s. He, he and his wife uh, wanted to kind of delve further into this theory that, that uh, was coming out after the interpretation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they wanted to see if there was any surviving mushroom cults. So they went to, um, in, in this process, they went to Guatemala. And in Mesoamerica, there is a tradition of, of rit- ritualistic use of, of uh, mushrooms in, in Mesoamerica. It, it happened to be uh, of the psilocybin, or the, the psilocybe strain. And they found, they found a group of people that were still ritualistically using mushrooms in the, in the highlands in Guatemala, and, and through their studies, they also came across the, the writings of a number of friars who came with the uh, Spanish conquistadors. And in these writings, the Spanish conquistadors uh, talk about how, how similar the ritualistic use of mushrooms within the Mayan and Aztec uh, religions was to the, to the, to the communion within the, the Catholic Mass. And point blank in these, people's, in these friars' writings is that they, this, this scared them a little bit because they were expecting to find heathens. They were expecting to find people who did not have any type of ritual, did not have any type of religion, did not have any type of culture, and they found something that was incredibly similar to their own practices. And in response to this, their, their policy was to burn these documents. So we, we lost a huge amount of knowledge. But one of the things that they found it, uh, when, they, when they delved further into this is they found um, actual mushroom uh, statues, stone statues, uh, that were made by the the Aztecs and the Aztecs and the Mayans, and the one of the one of the things that's that uh, it was similar to the ancient Sumerian fertility cults amongst these groups is that is that when they took the mushroom they were expect that the tradition was to leave an offering, and this this brings to mind the uh, the the uh, practice within the Catholic Mass, which is before the before the ceremony, before the transubstation of, the, of the, the wafer and the, and, the, and the wine into the body and blood of Christ, there's an offering. So you bring, you bring up, the, uh, well, a lot of times it's a basket filled with money, but uh, you make the offering to the God for the sacrifice for taking, for taking the mushroom. So, uh, and this was also a practice within the, the Mesoamerican, Mayan, and Aztec religions. I understand, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, David, with respect to trying to make too many parallels between different religions and this, this idea that religions are connected to the use of a, of, of a mushroom or some other psychedelic substance. But, but to me, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there's some, some truth to, to what these scholars are saying. I wanted to um, bring it back to the Eucharistic meal or what Christians call that and the origins of it. Uh, in the book Beyond Belief by Elaine Pagos, who's an expert in the Gnostic Gospels, she talks about how the original Christians, according to the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, this is a, a Syriac manuscript that is actually older than the New Testament, it says that they saw themselves as not Christians 
or set bread, but it's Jews. And then it says that they saw the meal, the Eucharistic meal, or the whatever they call the Lord's Supper, um, as a way of them breaking bread and, and drinking wine as part of pretty much a, a Sabbath Friday night dinner. And they talked about it in very simplistic ways. They didn't bring it back to the body of Christ. They didn't talk about it in these other mystical things from the holistic perspective. But they saw it as just a gathering, not even a sacred meal. It was mostly like a time to commune among each other. So this is the early Christian understanding of the Lord's Supper that is in line with Judaism. Whatever people were doing in the medieval times, secret societies, painting strange things in cathedrals, to me it's, it's very similar to the Da Vinci Code conspiracy where you start seeing symbols. You, you walk into one place, you see something, that must be connected to that, and back and forth. And when it's all said and done, there's a lot of... It's so much work to try to, in the eyes of, of the person with this theory, that people who are trying to suppress this perspective were so busy trying to suppress it, they would have never had time to create their own religion or work out their own issues. And, and to me, the Bible is already complicated enough. If you just, it takes years to, um, to learn the language, just to study the different perspectives, to bring a, an outside element. And this is something that minority communities have complained about, that Cornell West talks about this in an old interview. The reason that the different um, universities have a Jewish studies program or an African-American studies program is because they want people from those communities to discuss their texts, their culture, their artifacts, from their perspective. And when a Western or outsider comes in and says, well, you actually have your religion and your perspective completely wrong, I've uncovered something that explains everything away, uh, it seems suspicious, especially because it undermines the, the cohesion of those communities. And in a sense, that's what happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls when these scholars were holding the scrolls captive because for political reasons, whatever they didn't want them to come out. But then they finally came out, and we and now we can see what the scrolls say. And again, there's very little evidence that there is this, you know, anything with pharmacological things or with plant-related. The group of the Essenes was a, a very apocalyptic group who were ready to, to be part of the battle between light and darkness. So they're talking about spiritual things, they're talking about angels, they're talking about God, they're talking about different messianic figures. But it's all this, you know, in preparation for this final battle. And there's very little set up for this ongoing uh, practice of any type of uh, spiritual, experiential thing. And that's what was different about Christianity. Christianity started off like that, and then they became more integrated and more institutionalized. And they came up with different interpretations, so then they were established and set up within the Roman system. The other group was so apocalyptic that they ended up getting killed because they hadn't prepared for the world to run as it is. A lot of people say, well, maybe in Kabbalah or in mystical Christianity, maybe there's something we can find regarding uh, plants. The Burke brothers who run the Kabbalah Center, they've made Kabbalah very new age. They've made it very open and anybody can study it. And nowhere in, in what they've founded or brought to the surface, and this is something that the Hasidim did in the 17th century, they they made mysticism popular. 
Nowhere in there do they mention any type of drug connection. There are hippies in Israel uh, or hippie-style spiritual uh, groups where they'll smoke marijuana because they claim that some of maybe some of the mystical leaders, when they smoke their pipes, they have marijuana in it. But still, it's all conjecture. There's no no evidence of that. Who knows if in uh, Yugoslavia there was marijuana they could smoke in their pipes. And then what Allegro does, and this is something that is controversial to say, he does the same thing that the church fathers did. The church fathers from Alexandria, uh, Syria, and different places around the Roman Empire, they had a very Greek understanding of the world. So when they read the Hebrew scriptures and the, the Christian scriptures who were written by Jews, they read them from these uh, very Greek perspectives that try to make everything symbolic. So when you take these texts that are very complicated and you try to uh, change their meaning and redefine things and kind of creatively make them fit to your own purposes, you can pretty much come up with anything. You can make them, and this was happening in the year 2000 with the uh, Bible codes and things like that. People were finding all kinds of things that that they could claim. They were talking about Michael Jackson in the Bible and stuff. And then the manna, the only thing I know about the manna is that it says in the Bible that it tasted like almonds. So I don't know if mushrooms taste like almonds. I just think that art is very unique to the artist. And there's paintings where Jesus is partaking of the Passover meal. And some Catholics would have issues with, with a painting of Jesus partaking of the Passover meal because he's, he's not part of the religious establishment at that time. He's bringing something new. And then to me it's like, why not just have a completely different religion that honors the mushroom or the plants? Why try to create a new interpretation of Christianity or Judaism to fit those perspectives? It would be completely uh, rational and normal nowadays to just have a religion that is focused on the nature, and there's no need to have to go back and try to fit in these perspectives. And the last thing is that a circular argument where things are hidden and you have to find them could be made up by UFOs, and I'm hoping to have someone talk about this in the future, that Instead of having a supernatural uh, deity who revealed themselves, it could have been a UFO who came down, and the star children came down and spoke to the people, and then the people misinterpreted, and now there's a vast conspiracy to keep that uh, outside of the mainstream. But until the aliens show up and we have more evidence, it's neither here nor there. I I think one thing uh, that you had said that I found interesting is that you can interpret things. You can. You, there's a, there's this tendency to interpret things per your your preconceived notions of the thing, and I think that happens a lot. Uh, with respect to John Allegro, I don't think he went into interpreting the Dead Sea Scrolls with the mushroom theory already in mind. This is something that he found after the translations, and he was able to find this unique connection because he was an etymologist and because he had knowledge of Sumer, uh, the Sumerian language. This interpreting things according to your preconceived notions can also occur. It, it, it occurs. It can occur on the traditional side of the spectrum, and also on the on the uh, the uh, new interpretations that that might come about based on new discoveries. Um, and I think that that happens on both sides with these types of issues, when especially with respect to historical documents. This, this is a very heated thing because people's traditions. Their interpretations of these traditions are, are kind of at stake with some of these new discoveries. And, and I don't think it's just artistic license that led to these paintings. I, th- I think there's a real connection between the, the Jesus and the Christian cults with these, with these substances. 
Um, there was there's a group of uh, in the Middle Ages. There was a group of monks who shaved their heads in a certain way, and the practice was to put the holy anointing oil over their heads, and they shaved their heads so that the oil would soak into the top of their heads, and and soak into the hair that surrounded it to to bring about um, a spiritual experience. But it was believed by those people, and the part of the reasons why they practiced this is that the the anointing oil. A lot of people believe contained the oil of Amanita, allowed them to convene with God, and so it was a very sacred thing for them. I can't, I just can't ignore this symbolism associated with Jesus and the mushrooms and these the first giant uh, cathedrals that were built during the time. It was not uncommon within these traditions for for the name of the the sacred substance to be hidden symbolically. And, and the reason for that is that they did not want the knowledge to be in the common's hands because they, they considered themselves to be the elect, to be the only group that had access and knowledge to these sacred substances. And they were very interested in protecting that knowledge. So why not just put it right out there that it's the mushroom? Or why not just speak about it plainly that it's the mushroom? Well, it's because they were protective of this. And a lot of, a lot of indigenous cultures with respect to their ritualistic practices where a lot of these cultures, the, the, the tradition with respect to these different substances was, was passed down from uh, word of mouth. It, it's not uncommon within indigenous healing traditions for it to, to occur that way. The traditions with respect to the, the plants that were involved, how to mix them, the different, uh, the different properties and the different uses of them were handed down word of mouth from the high priest or, or whatever you want to call that person, the shaman or the healer to the initiate to the per, or to the apprentice. And this parallels with uh, the tradition within folk medicine or, or witches within uh, the Middle Ages. They had a tradition, traditional knowledge of plants and their properties that was passed down from person to person, word of mouth. And the reason for doing that is that a lot of people weren't literate, they couldn't read, so that had to be passed down word of mouth. Um, John Lego's theory is that it was done to protect the, to protect the knowledge. We'll, we'll never know exactly because a lot of the healers and a lot of these people were killed by by the church in the Middle Ages and also within um, within South America and the conquistadors. Want to bring it back to Joel's perspective? I think that he can really um, kind of help us get back to reality in the sense of we can have a heated perspective on on this, but what matters is being open, being accepting of others, and and I like what he says that. Um, when it all comes down to it, it's, it's about being a good person and caring for one another. In your experiences, did anybody have any type of emotional response to either being discriminated because of their use of psychotropics or having had negative experiences or things like that? At that time, was it time to explore things, to experiment, to pursue different perspectives? One of the late-night shows, John Lennon was interviewed and said, when he was asked, well, would you say that you smoke marijuana? He said, no. I wouldn't say it. Mm-hmm. And that's why you hear all these noted people as they're ready to die, they're on their last, on their deathbed with cancer. They tell their story about how for the last 45 years they've been, you know, smoking marijuana and and all the scholars who had said in the past about how evil it was and how and and listed all the reasons why it was. One of my spiritual teachers, it was uh, Werner Erhard, 
who was the founder of the S yes Training and now Landmark Education. And he said, understanding is the booby prize. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. You sit yeah. with that. Yeah. You know, and just see, see how it hits you. I guess prior to leaving it to interpretation, every human being's encounter with their life, with tradition, with their experience is precious. I think that um, it's easy to dismiss other people's experiences because you don't like them or they didn't work for you. So to have that understanding that when it all comes down to it is we've all been given this amazing opportunity to explore the, the universe. That's something amazing that we all have before us. And to love one another and to forgive one another. And that's, that's what's going to get the job done, ultimately, not who's right and who's wrong. I feel that if religion doesn't make a change for the positive, then it's pointless. And, and some people uh, find meaning in other type of ideas. So if after all these experiences people cannot reach out to other human beings, then it's really uh, a pointless exercise to even pursue knowledge or experience or anything that might fulfill us, but it doesn't change us or transform us mm -hmm. to be a greater person. Mm -hmm. in, in my personal experience with that, is, uh, it, with respect to transformation and feeling love and, and loving others and uh, seeking understanding, my personal experience with psychedelics helped me with that quite a bit. I guess why I'm so passionate about this is that if these substances different psychedelics can have the same transformative impact on me, I believe that they can have the same impact on others. And if over the years more evidence comes out and it becomes more accepted that, that it's possible that the Christian cults were using, or the Christians, early Christians were using mushrooms, then it might allow for, for Christians now to, to come around to this idea that, hey, you know, God created everything. Uh, this is a belief within within a lot of religions that God created everything, and if He created everything, He also created these mushrooms or these plants. And it, maybe it won't be so such a big deal to embrace these plants and and to start using them in the spiritual and sacred sense that they were used in the past. With respect to transformation in the time period that you that you had experience with the psychedelics, I'm assuming that it was during the the late '60s, early '70s, or I was a late bloomer. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> But there was a lot of people during that time who, who took, you know, who had experiences with these substances. The farm itself, it, it's not likely that, that we would be here today if it weren't for people who, who had experience, spiritual experiences with these substances. So even if, even if this theory of John Allegro and other, and other people is, is somewhat controversial, I, I think it's really important because I, I, I think we're coming to a point in our culture where where it will be acceptable to use these substances, it's they're they're being studied right now. Uh, there are different churches that have that have formed based on these uh, substances, and so uh, I, I just think it's really important to to not dismiss what these scholars are saying, and to any, you know if you're interested in delving into it, to, to delve into it because I think there's a lot of good that can come about by embracing these substances in a sacred spiritual way. What's the expression? Whatever turns you on. Exactly. I have a question. Do you know much about Cannabis Spirituality, the book? Because I haven't had a I chance to read it. I know nothing about the book. Okay, have you had a chance to read it? I haven't read it. Okay, because what I've heard is that there was this idea that uh, cannabis had healing powers and that there was a counter-distinction with alcohol, that alcohol 
had negative effects and that cannabis had pretty much it was the the potion that could heal all things so maybe in the future we'll have someone who who's an expert on the topic too bad uh we can have uh, the writer of that book here because he passed on um last year but i think that's that's the idea of when the farm was was created it came from that perspective that that particular drug had a special place and that a spirituality could be affected or move forward with it. There was a documentary where they interviewed one of the Beatles, and he was saying that he was tired as a Catholic to hear all these stories about people talking to God and angels and stuff like that, and that until he went to India, he had a chance through drugs to have access to that, those same type of experiences. From a traditional perspective, the question is, do you need those to get to that point, and the people who have those experiences are seen in the traditional world as having that that extra spark. There's a, there's a writer that says that regular people have a glimpse of the heavenly realm. Mystics experience it every once in a while, but prophets have access to it. So I think that uh, supernatural stuff can be seen from a rational perspective in the sense of is there a way to measure those experiences? Is there a way to conceive of any form of experiences outside of our realm in metaphysics. And that's what the the philosophers up until the 1800s felt that there was a way for people to connect with that. And they believed in some type of God to get them in touch with that. So I think uh, we will have more discussions about this. Again, as the mystic and the skeptic, we want to really get into the heart of stuff and are getting a little too uh, into it. Just know that that's that's where we grow that's where we learn from one another because we take things seriously and we appreciate people who kind of make us take a step back and say hey man relax take it easy when it's all said and done it's all about love all right amen